On this episode of Isolated But Not Alone, we're going to be continuing our discussion on personality development and the various individual theories that make that up. Last week, we discussed person-centered therapy. And this week, we're going to talk about gestalt theory. So gestalt has always been something that I have found to be interesting. This therapy came around in what is considered the third wave, which is often referred to the wave of therapies that came out and theories that came out that were related but different and opposing to various features of psychoanalysis and behaviorism. Oftentimes, they actually oppose nearly every aspect of those uh, theories. And it was like this surge of innovative thinkers. And I could spend a lot of time on this. Viktor Frankl, Abraham Maslow, Rollo May, Virginia Satir, Carl Rogers, Irvin Yalom, who we discussed a few episodes ago, and kind of how they saw the person and how they kind of move therapy into another realm, so to say. They felt that psychoanalysis and behaviorism really were devoid of the human experience. They felt that they were devoid of qualities pertaining to human values, dignity, welfare, and personal growth. Gestalt theory came out right around the time of the 1950s. And one of its big positions, an explicit position, is that the client-therapist relationship should be free of contact inhibitors. We should see people as people and not some kind of mechanical process. We need to have a mutual relationship that dramatically rises the possibility that clients can engage their full potential. The goal was to kind of take clients out of or disconnect them from perceptions that were faulty. And so as we go forward, we're going to kind of discuss how they saw the personality. So stay tuned. Hi, this is James Raines, and you're listening to Isolated But Not Alone, a podcast that seeks to bring mental health awareness to rural and isolated communities. I just wanted to take this time to let you know that this and other content produced by James Raines is not therapy and is not intended to be therapy or to replace therapy. Nothing in this podcast indicates or creates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek one in your area if you are experiencing any type of mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as specific life advice, and it is simply for the purpose of education. Welcome back to Isolated But Not Alone. On today's episode, we're going to continue our discussion on personality development by discussing gestalt therapy. It's a nice day here in Minnesota. It's nice and cool for the summer. And there's lots of summer activities going on at the library and the pool. And it's just kind of an exciting time. But I also feel like the summer is flying by here. I mean, I look at the calendar and it's the 14th of July already. And it just seemed like yesterday was May. And so our nice warm slash cooler summer. And that's about ready to give way to this blistering cold that this area can feel. And so I'm kind of enjoying the last little bit of summer. And a little bit excited slash concerned about the upcoming winter. And I'm not a huge fan of the heat. So I tend to be more of a homebody during the time when it's hot outside, even though these summers have been a little bit cooler here in Minnesota. And so I've been watching this show on Netflix called Car Masters Rust to Riches. And it's kind of my morning habit 
to get up, have some breakfast, and just sit down and watch part of an episode, and then finish that episode at lunch. And I've just found this to be a very interesting show. I grew up in the home of a mechanic whose dad was a mechanic, whose step-parent was a mechanic. And so I kind of grew up around vehicles and people working on vehicles. And so I've always kind of enjoyed that type of work. And yet, at the same time, I really never developed any of my own skills at doing that type of work. Now I can do minor things, I can change oil, I can change brake pads, rotors, shocks, struts, basic repairs to a vehicle. But I always really enjoyed helping my grandpa tear down his 1967 and a half Chevy truck down to its frame, tear the engine down, rebuild everything. I really enjoyed that work and getting to experience that, but I oftentimes feel like it was a missed opportunity because even though I really enjoyed that and it brought me some peace and comfort and connection with my grandfather, I really never paid attention enough. And maybe you've had that experience where you grew up in the home of somebody who was very gifted and talented, and yet you really didn't either get those attributes or you did, but you never really paid attention in your young years enough to really kind of grasp or hone the skill that they were trying to pass on to you. And unfortunately, he passed away in 2010. And so oftentimes I'm left with this desire to hone this skill and to do this and yet never seem to be able to do that or get that opportunity. And we came from a muscle car family and we were actually on the Chevy side, which is kind of ironic because growing up, my dad always had Fords. He had, for example, a 1979 Ford Mustang that he dropped a rebuilt 302 engine from a truck, a tow truck actually, into that car. And if you know what a 1979 Mustang looks like, and that it originally came with a four-cylinder, it was really high off the ground. When you would step down on that thing, that car would <laughs> decrease the gap between itself and the ground very, very quickly, even to the point where I often wondered what it was going to do to the chassis <laughs> of the car. And then at some point, he had a Ford truck with a 351 Cleveland engine in it. But unfortunately, that truck started to have issues after he started trying to add power to that engine <laughs> because it's known that that 351 Cleveland is a pretty rock-solid, reliable engine until you start kind of playing around with it. But then as I got older, he transitioned into having more Chevrolets ending up with a Camaro before he passed away. And so growing up in that home, there was also a lot of trauma, and I experienced a lot of trauma. And because of that, I had this resistance towards trying anything new. New things terrified me. And oftentimes, things that I might have learned or talents I might have pursued, I avoided at all cost because of this fear, this deep-rooted fear of trying something new. And so doing some of my work in mental health for myself personally helped me to realize that I had all this potential and then I myself had locked it away because of my fear. And so some of the work that I had to do was to try new things, to try to unlock my potential, become more aware of what I could or couldn't do, become more aware of my boundaries by addressing the fear that kept them imprisoned. But there was more to it than just the fear that needed to be addressed. It was my inability to even see what the issue was. I had no idea, no vision, no insight into what I needed to develop. There were parts of myself that were alienated. There were parts that were just straight up denied. There were parts that I stuffed down deep 
that I hope I would never have to see. I was terrified of facing anything face to face, even my fear. And the whole time I had this mentality that I was a loner, that I was disconnected, that I was somehow not dependent on anybody. And yet there was this hyper dependence on others. And I was resistant to anything that threw that out of balance. And so I say all this to talk about gestalt therapy because a lot of what I was addressing this theory speaks to. So before we begin, I just want to say that gestalt psychology and gestalt theory are similar in some ways, but they also have differences. And I'm prefacing that for the folks out there who actually know what this theory is versus folks who might not. For those of you who don't really know what the therapy is, just know that there's some similarities and there's some differences in the psychology versus the theory. But they share similar beliefs when it comes to the basic concepts of human nature. Again, they're not exactly the same, but they do share similar concepts. They hold that humans encounter, observe, and change over time that they should be taken as a whole and not as distorted pieces. And that's where the actual term gestalt comes from. Gestalt came from the German language. And in German, gestalt has this idea of shaping or forming. And in gestalt psychology, it has this understanding that the whole is perceived to be more than just the sum of the parts. Gestalt brought this interesting concept of proximity in their understanding of human nature. When things, persons, or objects are in close proximity with each other and time, they are seen as creating a whole. And this understanding of proximity is kind of complex. But basically it's this. Things that are close together appear to be more related than things that are spaced apart. It's so powerful that it actually overrides similarities and differences. So for example, something might have a different shape or color that would help you to recognize it outside of other things, but if they're really close together, it's hard to see that. And then those things become something else. They become their own thing. So instead of combination, a sum of lots of little different parts, it really is one thing because the objects are so close together. This is something they saw as extremely important in how we connect with others. So one of the things that they saw as important was they sought to integrate the client's personality. They thought recognizing and strengthening the client's present state of awareness was extremely important. So important, in fact, that they would confront anything that blocks the client's ability to be aware of what they need to develop. And that kind of ties into what I was addressing, was there were so many things that was blocking my ability to be aware of what I needed to do. So part of this would be to confront those blocks. There's also this idea of accepting everyone's parts, including those that are denied, alienated, stuffed down deep, to use that phrase, to accept them, all of them, as well as helping people to understand they need to be able to face the fear that results from not knowing how they will react to situations. Fear is a very powerful motivator. And as I said in my story, fear was something that kept me trapped in certain ways of thinking, certain patterns of thinking, certain ways of reacting and interacting with my environment. Another concept of this theory that I find to be interesting is that it believes that unity results from when an organism and its environment come together. So basically a person needs their environment to be whole. The folks who practice this felt that background was extremely important and they considered that kind of the stew, the soup that reality was created from, that gestalt 
was formed from. They believe that individuals who were not in touch with what they needed to know to grow had fragmented personality. And this is a very deep concept, and we're not going to spend a massive amount of time on this. But this concept of fragmentation of personality was not new, nor was it complete, meaning that as the decades went by, more and more research, more and more studies would be done on what exactly is fragmentation of personality. What is disassociation? What is multiple personality disorder? And so you're going to see a lot of work on what it actually means to be fragmented. You're going to see a rise on research on trauma and how trauma is related to fragmentation. And so, like I said, it's just something to be aware of that this concept was not new and there's been a lot of work on this concept. And when I use the word fragmentation, fragmentation is shared by a lot of different systems of theory. One of the ways in which they saw individuals fighting against or prohibiting their full potential was something they called top dog and underdog. These were internal factors that hinder the full expression of healthy actualization. One is authoritative and righteous, and the other is an inner block that prohibits the individual from reaching their full potential. I've always found those concepts to be interesting because I've always been for the underdog. Maybe that says something about my internal psychology. And again, this theory saw resistance as something that was used by the client to manipulate the environment in order to maintain their dependency. And so there's a lot about this theory and about how it saw people and how it interacted with people. What's interesting is, for me personally, is that the only therapist that I knew that I had interactions with that was classically trained in Gestalt was very aggressive as a therapist, especially when confronting blocks that prohibited me from reaching my full potential. But at the same time, that was such an uncomfortable process that I resisted more. So then it made me wonder, like, was there other ways to address the blocks instead of direct confrontation? So something to think about as you're thinking about this theory. And I don't know a lot of folks who practice Gestalt therapy classically anymore. I know that 10, 15 years ago, there were several folks that I knew that had gone to somebody who was classically trained in Gestalt. However, a lot of folks who get trained in therapy, who get trained in counseling, have studied Gestalt therapy, have maybe taken some of the proponents of this theory and added it to their own practice and the way that they do therapy. And so this is something that you might encounter while going through the therapeutic process, though you might not necessarily know that you're encountering it because the person is not saying that they are utilizing Gestalt therapy, but they have utilized some of its core concepts and the way they conceptualize your case. One thing that I see a lot of and hear folks talking about a lot is a Gestalt intervention. And this intervention is the empty chair. And this is an experiment where the client speaks to an empty chair as if it were occupied by a person related to some kind of incomplete business or what they termed unfinished business. What's interesting is it doesn't necessarily have to be a person. It can be a situation or a concept or a state of mind. For example, poverty would be a situation. Courage might be a concept or fear, as well as a state of mind like anxiety or depression. And what's also interesting is this is not a one-way conversation, right? There's lots of different ways I've seen this done, but one of the ways that was traditionally done was the client would speak and then talk as if they were the person in the other chair and respond as well. So sometimes this is also called a two-chair technique. And this was important because Fritz Perl believed, and he was the person who helped develop this theory, that 
unfinished business has lingering gestalts that often relate to a client's previous relationship with their family, specifically with a parent. And that is Gestalt Therapy in a nutshell. If you would like more information, again, the book that I'm getting a lot of this information out of is called Theories and Applications of Counseling and Psychotherapy. But you can Google Gestalt, and there's a lot of interesting information out there about it, including a lot of interesting information about Fritz and Laura Pearls, who were the couple that kind of are given credit for a lot of what we know about Gestalt Therapy. So we're going to go ahead and end there. I hope you're enjoying this content. There are several more theories to discuss as we move forward. Remember, you might be isolated, but you're not alone. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to share it with friends and family and reach out with any questions you might have about mental health, And we will do our best in future shows to answer those questions. And remember, it might feel like you're isolated. And maybe you are. But you're not alone.